It's time for Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Ken is a nationally syndicated automotive journalist and photographer who has been in and around the industry for over 30 years. So tune in for your fill of automotive information and entertainment with your automotive ringmaster, Ken Chester. Thank you for tuning in. This is Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester, America's premier automotive news and information talk show. Yes, we're fluent in car talk here, but don't let that scare you. We're about, we're about explaining the swirl of technology that you face in and around your vehicle every day. I explain what's coming and what it means to you in plain English. We talk tech since much of the technology that's being developed today has some type of eventual mobility application. In the meanwhile, I also equip you with the information you need and should have right now with respect to your vehicle, from choosing, and bu from choosing buying and leasing, to trading in your old wheels and what you need to know about your credit, financing, and even insurance. You don't have to be a car nut to enjoy my show, but it doesn't hurt if you are. As usual, we have plenty to talk about during this hour, so let's get started. And breaking news, it's about crude oil as the U.S. improves its position in the world as a major producer and how creative financing is putting automotive dreams in motorist driveways. Later in the hour, the Chinese are coming. No, really, they're coming. And it may have some deep-reaching consequences. Now, there's also cybersecurity risk in your OBD2 port in your current car. It's a thing, and yeah, if you've got a car that's 1996 or newer, you have one. We'll talk about it. And then finally, will General Motors build an electric pickup truck before Elon Musk? All this with our regular cast of characters during this hour of Roadworthy Drive. Now, as always, Roadworthy Drive is not even possible without the sage guidance and steady hands of my friend and Roadworthy Drive executive producer, Jack DeLeon. Good howdy. Hi, bud. How are you? I'm doing okay. Um, no. A good howdy. Yes, that was a good howdy. A good um, Had a meeting with the suits. You know, I don't understand why you and the suits get to meet and they never include me. Um, or me. Well, yeah, what's up with that? Number one, you're 50 Careful. to 100 miles away. <laughs> uh -huh. So that causes an issue. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, they prefer talking to me to you for some reason. I don't know. Apparently, I'm one of their favorites. I'm not going to touch that um, for so but it, many reasons. But anyway, I do have a piece of news, Sasha. Yes. News. Um, we were not able to secure a sponsor to go to Chicago with Kent. Oh. I know. However, we will be working on that in the future. So can we start looking for a sponsor so we could go to CES? Uh, that one too, yes. But CES will be over by the time that we could even come up with an advertiser now. No, no, no. we've got all year to, so we could go to it next year. Oh, yes, yes. Okay, I see. Uh, what, start I see now. Yeah. Start mm -hmm. saving up your pennies, people. Yep. Send us your dimes. Oh wow, really? Yep. Oh, well, hey, hey, we're not. What is, we're not we're, shy, huh? No, we're not shy at all. Okay, I am a little. I know. Okay, Ken. Now you and I have talked about this over the last two years. Mm-hmm. The U.S. is becoming the number two crude oil producer in the country, in the, in the world, excuse me. I'm assuming Saudi is still first, or the Middle East is still first. No. Who's first? Russia. Really? 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 Yes. So Saudi's number three? 
will be, yes. Okay. Wow. So I want you to go ahead and explain to me and everybody else, uh, what does this actually mean? Are we a little late to the party? No. Um, okay. Let's take you back. I got to take you back almost 50 years. Conventional wisdom at one time in the United States was peak oil. That means the height of our ability to remove crude from the ground. Right. Was expected to be in 1970. And they expected from then on that we would get less and less crude from the ground. Enter in technology and a whole bunch of different ways that we are now able to extract crude from even supposedly fields that are worn out. You mean, you mean fields that would, would, would be dry? Well, worn out. Okay. Is, is a term I'd rather use than, okay. than dry because obviously they're going in. And uh, in the terms of one wildcatter who bought supposedly one of these worn out fields, mm -hmm. he said that he would get more oil out of the ground in the upcoming years than the majors got in the first 90. They owned it. Wow. In, in, in a supposedly played out field. Okay. Then there's North Dakota and U.S. shale oil. Yep. We've got a bunch of things coming in play here. One, uh, OPEC has gotten production stable and production cuts, and they're kind of in this catch-22. If they pump more oil, they may tamp down other producers, but they're depleting their supplies faster and they're getting less for it. If they maintain the production caps they got, it means that, okay, fine, but it allows the price of the uh, material to rise, bringing in competitors. That's exactly what's happening. But actually, Saudi Arabia did America a favor a few years ago. When Saudi Arabia decided to pump more oil, mm -hmm. they forced out the weak producers and the high leverage producers in the shale oil fields. So when they contracted, the folks who had the money and could wait bought assets on the cheap and squazed out the folks who couldn't afford to hang. Now, our producers up there are more flexible, better financed, and can actually take whatever they throw at them. It means basically they strengthened our industry without realizing it. Yeah, because I remember when that boom, the first one, when actually bus? started. No, yeah. actually started. Mm -hmm. Because we were approached to go up there and start building houses because they had no place to put all these guys. And these guys were staying in any and everything imaginable. Yeah, when you're paying $1,000 a week for a bedroom. Yeah. Yeah. And some people were even sleeping in their cars. Now, making well, 50, that, well, that's what I meant. They were yeah. sleeping in cars, trucks, yeah. campers, making 50 RVs, to 60, whatever. 50000 or more dollars a year yeah. and had no place to live. Yep. Uh, but in any case. Uh, so but the combination of that is bringing shale oil back online. And they expect us to hit production above over 10 million barrels of crude a day in the United States. And did I mention we actually export a little bit? Yeah, I, I've heard that, but explain that, please. Just like you said, we're exporting domestic crude oil from the United States to other places. But isn't it the light stuff and not the heavy stuff? Yeah, but you don't want the heavy stuff. The heavy stuff's the equivalent of asphalt and tar. And oh, it's I not know. Right. Real friendly? No, no. We're we're we've got the good stuff, okay. and we're exporting that. But here's the thing: Saudi is trying to diversify as we speak away from oil. We, we had talked about that. And we have. Yes, we have. We have. Now, the problem is if you belong to OPEC and you're a smaller country, you're caught in a squeeze. You need the oil revenue. So you mm -hmm. want to pump all you can. But pumping all you can will eventually drive down prices. Yep. Causing budget shortfalls. 
So if you're a larger country, you may have the wherewithal to weather it. If you're a smaller country, you want to pump. Yeah, you, you and OPEC up till now has not been successful in maintaining these folks. Everybody play by the rules. Well, and that's and that's been their problem for how many years now? A lot, a lot. Okay, Ken. Before we run out of time here, yeah. But wait a minute, I want to leave you okay. this last thought on this. Um, we are also the number one producer and next net exporter of natural gas. Now that I knew. Yeah, I did, for the first time in sixty years. Yep. Just thought I'd throw that out there, that both crude oil and natural gas. Okay, well, like so- the party, but... Hey, hey, hey. Okay, okay Sasha. Yes, this, sir. This next one, uh, I think we can barrage him with a bunch of questions. <laughs> well, you don't have much time number, before the number break. Number one. So go for it. What do you mean by putting dreams in my driveway? Because uh, I got some pretty big dreams. Oh, I do, too. Vehicle right. dreams, first of all. And I, yes, they're vehicle. Uh, yeah. yeah, due to consumer-friendly financing arrangements, uh, this one company could put pretty much, if you've got the money... They'll put a Ferrari, a Porsche, Aston Martin, Lamborghini, or maybe even a McLaren, a McLaren in your driveway. I'm not interested in any of those. Yeah. Well, no, he might have me a Ferrari. Yeah. Ah. Not so much. Um, They're getting interest from all sorts of people uh, because they're putting together special deals that allow these high value cars that people can lease them at affordable rates. And the interest is unrelenting. Prices have been going up for the last five years. Interest has been going up for the last four what years. Is, what is the average cost of what they say the lease is? Well, I can't speak to that because they didn't get into that. But the average the average vehicle in the company portfolio is over a million dollars. Right. Um, for vehicles that are actually being financed, where people buy them. But that was the question about I was asking. About $228,000. Um, so if you're looking at this... And you're only wanting a little bit, like maybe a five-year lease, which is most of these. Okay. You can get into them pretty reasonable, relatively. And what are we – can we put a dollar amount to what is reasonable? They did not, but I'm guessing based on the math and the mileage, you're probably looking at, oh, I would say in and around between $1,000 and $1,500 a month, considering these vehicles cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. And you would be looking at ten, twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars a month. But you can do it. When we come back, the Chinese are coming. Really? And later, a present risk. Your OBD two port. This is Roadworthy Drive. This is Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. anti-lock braking system like Mercedes, a driver airbag like BMW, a rear load leveling suspension feature similar to Rolls, and a more advanced transmission than Jaguar, this is a simple way to get it all. Introducing the all-new Chrysler Imperial. There is no luxury without engineering. The guaranteed rebate has been extended until February 28th. Get $1,000 now. See, Sasha, that answers your question. Does it, though? It does. You could get a 1990 uh-huh. Chrysler Imperial uh-huh. and have it all. You, I just don't Put think, it in your driveway. I just don't think that that would actually be all. 
I mean, it would be a lot of problems. Not necessarily. Uh, uh, nice no. car if you can get one. Uh, no. Uh, if you're just tuning in, this is the second segment of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester, and thanks for dropping by. Over the last few years, I've shared with listeners about the imports of Chinese-made vehicles by some of the major automakers. To be honest, until I actually looked up the information, there was no hint in the build quality that there were any glaring deficiencies. And I said this years ago, that when the Chinese started building vehicles, they would be offered for sale in America, and that unlike the Japanese and the Koreans that came before, the quality curve would be much steeper, and in fact has been. Uh, I bet you had no idea. The current Volvo S60, the Buick Envision crossover, and even the Cadillac CT6 hybrid sedan are all, as Jack would say, wait for it, made in China. And those are whole vehicles. This isn't even dealing with the many component parts found in most, in some of the most unlikely places, in probably the vehicle you're driving now that's made in China. Now, after long last, it appears that the number two market in the world, and that's right, the U.S. is number two, sorry, after, you guessed it, China. 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 That a, that a Chinese manufacturer is planning to offer its wares in its own name here with some help from a well-known domestic automaker. Okay, now you have me curious. Mm-hmm. Now, you remember in our, our last show, uh, we were talking about a particular automaker and their future. You mean their non-existent future? Well, take that as you will. Um, and I said, <laughs> I said that, uh, put a pin in that. Remember yes, that? You did. Yes, you did. Here's, here's, where, here's why. Okay. Uh, the name of this company is uh, GAC Automotive uh, in Japan. They are the sixth largest automaker in Japan. They are also one of the top quality automakers in Japan. They've actually worked with both Toyota and Honda building vehicles on their behalf and in the last five years have won, an award, won awards from both those companies wow. for quality. Okay. Also finished highest, and I say this, um, I, I say this a little bit conflicted. Okay. And, and I'm going to explain myself now. The information I have says they've they finished at the top of the JD Power and Associates initial quality survey, but you know how I feel about those surveys. Yeah, I do. So I mm -hmm. say it, I leave it alone, and I'm not even going to go any further. They've been looking at coming into the United States now for four years. Oh, wow. They've been trying to plan. Okay. They are taking a number of steps. They opened a technical center in Silicon Valley. They're looking at opening a second facility in Metro Detroit. And then eventually they want to open a design studio in Los Angeles. Important note. Back in 2014, they said they were selling about 200,000 cars a year. They said, by 2017, we want to build 500,000 vehicles. And folks did, were like, did they make it? Hold on. Folks were like, eh, we don't think you're going to make it. Right. Uh, yeah. Last year, the company sold 508,000 vehicles, up 37%. Wow. Yeah. Okay. They're looking at bringing a SUV, an upscale SUV-type vehicle to the United States. Now, you might remember, we've talked about this company, too. And, I, and the minute I say the name that they use in the rest of the world, you'll remember. These were the people who had this nameplate, Trump Chi. Oh. 
Remember that? Yep, I do. They are very concerned of not using that name in the United States. I would hope not. <laughs> they, they had some concerns. So we don't know what they're going to call it. Now, here in the middle of all of this, current administration's having a fit about them coming over. Uh, both the Democrats and the Republicans are fussing. Okay. Now, what is their premise? Well, trade policies of U.S. goods to China and tariffs right, and all of that. Right, right, But here, here's something to think about. They said at the Detroit Auto Show, I'm sorry, the North American International Auto Show in Detroit. That happens to be in Detroit. Yes. yes. They're going to start selling vehicles in the United States in late 2019 through a partnership with, wait for it, Fiat Chrysler. I wow. knew it. Wow. I knew Sergio had something up his sleeve. Now, they's, now, they've been doing some things around the world, I guess, together. But, again, my take on this, very, very shortly, is that they got the money. Fiat Chrysler has the footprint. And the dealer network. And it, to start from. Yep. Um, Sergio says, no, 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 no. That I, it, eh, I'm not agreeing with him. And they're showing it's a beautiful vehicle that they're looking at selling. Wow. It's a nice-looking, very almost, finished vehicle. Here's almost, their concept. That almost looks like, um, oh, God, mm -hmm. um, one of the Kia products. Yeah. Now, they're looking at, they showed a concept called the Enverge Electric Two-Door Concept. It's a compact SUV that say it have an all-electric battery range of 370 miles, outpacing the Tesla Model 3's range. A 71-kilowatt-hour battery can be recharged, Shalasha, yes. wirelessly. What? Yeah. Reports said it could be recharged for 10 minutes to cover a distance of 240 miles. We've been talking about this, people. Yep, we have been. Okay, I now, told you it was coming. Would I have to install something in order for it well, to Well, they didn't get in all this because it was the concept they were showing. Right, right. But, yeah, can be recharged Charged. wirelessly. It's amazing. Told you that was coming, folks. Yes. And they won't be the last automaker. They expect to sell 100,000 vehicles annually within the first couple of years. And then they would explore, and this is the kicker, they would explore building an assembly plant in the United States. What did I tell you? That they're looking for an assembly plant in the United States. But what does that mean? Uh, it means that one of the plants that is sitting idle at the moment may become active. Maybe. Or a whole company. Are you, okay, let me, I think I just finally caught your point. Are you thinking they're going to buy Fiat Chrysler? All a part of it. That would be my position. Um, they've got top-end quality. They want to make a footprint. If you're spending money like you got sent, you're going to want to buy some stuff that you can build from. And I think that this, this might be the perfect out strategy for them, for Fiat Chrysler, particularly since they're a little, a few billion short on their development. So, food for thought. Coming up, a real and present danger lurking in your car. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Roadworthy Drive. Roadworthy 
Drive with Ken Chester is America's premier automotive news and information talk show. Welcome to segment number three of this hour of Roadworthy Drive. I'm Ken Chester. So, have you checked out our new and improved website yet? We recently redesigned it from top to bottom, and I'm really pleased how it turned out. It has a cleaner look to it and is much easier to navigate. At RoadworthyDrive.com, you can watch videos of the -the behind-the-scenes antics as we produce the radio show in studio every week, listen to past audio clips, and more. Meet the folks behind the scenes who bring you the show each week, as well as discover what we are doing in the world of social media. Sasha is a social media diva who keeps things light and lively during the week with interesting and thought-provoking posts of an automotive nature. Check it out and see how she keeps the social and our social media. Now, on this subject and what really started this subject I'm about to talk about, I'm going to try to stay out of the weeds, but it's one of these things I think you should be aware of. I uh, was thinking about Jack, too, because Jack is our resident uh, <laughs> anti-techie. Uh, I would not go that far. Well, I didn't say you I hated did, technology. I have, no, no. I have security concerns. And that is kind of what drove this. Um, got a press release, as I get a lot of press releases, and it was talking about this one firm offering uh, OBD2 readers. And it got me to thinking, and it triggered a memory way back deep about security concerns for these particular ports. Now, let me explain a little bit. And like I said, I'm going to try to stay out of the weeds, but this is something you need to be aware of. Every vehicle, every light-duty truck, not the necessarily the heavy-duty ones, but your light-duty trucks, minivans, cars, uh, crossovers, whatever, since 1996 has had a port inside the car called an onboard diagnostic port. Yep. OBD2. Why the two? It was the second iteration, and this is the one by federal law that became standard. Now, the reason for these ports back in the day, initially, was to identify and otherwise verify or fix faults in the emissions control system. Those are the only faults that the engine computer was supposed to trigger, like an engine backfire or other malfunction that would cause the emissions from the vehicle to exceed the acceptable limits by law. So they developed readers that the mechanics could plug into these cars, read the faults, find out what the problem is, fix the problem. And it's been that way for now 22 years. However, and this is the but, the automakers figured out down through the years that this would be a really great place to add capabilities for checking the, the health and diagnostic capabilities of other automotive subsystems. Right. So the OBD2 port became more important, of not just emission control, but for checking other systems, uh, developing different faults, and give the mechanic a way to quickly assess the health of the vehicle, what's gone wrong, what what faults am I getting, which are codes that come up that they can look up for that manufacturer to tell them 
This is what this code says. This problem happened. Based on this problem, here's your decision tree or here's your process tree for either clearing the fault or for and repairing the problem. Mm-hmm. But as I learned, and we talked about this right around Christmas, that's not always true because I had a fault in a brand new vehicle. Yes, you that's did. That's right. You had to take it to the dealership. I chose to take it to the dealer. But as it turns out, when I looked in the owner's manual for what should have triggered that fault, what the dealer told me, yeah, uh-uh, didn't match. Really? Really. What I learned and what the dealer learned is there was a temperature sensor in a place that never been before. And that temperature sensor reading in that particular camshaft sensor didn't mesh with the temperature uh, sensor at the bottom of the oil pan. Uh-huh. And that, sir, triggered the fault. Okay. Um, I didn't know that in the case of the what we, we used to call check engine light, which was mainly an emission control default problem, mm-hmm. um, they told me if the light had stayed on solid, you would have had no problem. You know, nothing that would have jeopardized the control and running of the vehicle. Correct. He said if it was blinking, you needed to bring it in. I went, what? It blinks? <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen it blink. No. From what I understand and from what the owner's manual says, you don't ever want it to. Well, no. Because if it's blinking, it needs to go to the dealer well, our, right now. Well, my question is, if it's blinking, do I need to shut it down no matter where I'm at? Probably. Depends on the vehicle. Buddy. Oh, wow. Good to know. It's, it's not a good thing. So, remember I said uh, the automaker started adding stuff to it. Right. Now. Though only emission-related codes and data are required to be transmitted through it, according to U.S. legislation, most manufacturers have made the OBD2 data link connector the main connector in the vehicle through which all systems are diagnosed, and here's the scary part, reprogrammed. What? Yeah. I was thinking about you, Jack. I was thinking about you. Whoa, whoa, back this truck back up. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought that would I thought that would ring some bells. Yeah, it rang some bells. Why for me. would you? Why would you need a reprogram in the first place? All the computers in the vehicles now, and they've got flash memory, and maybe you're putting in an update, a, a safety update, or a repair update, or a service bulletin update, which required reprogramming to incorporate different attributes to correct the problem. Which would have been fine, except of all these data readers that have the ability to clear codes, repair codes, whatever. Um, Now, security issues. I'm so glad you asked me, Jack. The primary – there have been reports of thieves using specialist OBD reprogramming devices to enable them to steal cars without the use of a key. Did I mention I'm not talking autonomous cars. I'm not talking electric cars. I'm talking probably the vehicle you're driving right now. Yep. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, to spook you a little further, in 2012, that's six years ago, vehicles produced by BMW, Porsche, Opel, Renault, Mercedes, Volkswagen, and Toyota were stolen by programming a blank key fob to start the car through the OBD connection. Although the good news, most of those automakers have corrected that problem. Thank goodness. In particular, and this was spooky too, the FBI has recommended that vehicle owners should check with the security and privacy policies of third-party device manufacturers and service providers, and they should not 
connect any unknown or untrusted devices to the OBD2 port. Did I mention that came from the FBI? Yes, and Homeland Security. Yes, yep. sir. Yes, sir. So how do I know as a customer whether the box at my Ford dealer or my Chevy dealer is legit? It boils down to this. If it ain't done by the dealer, don't put nothing in there that ain't that ain't original equipment. Oh, you mean oh you're talking about the devices you can get supposedly to clear your own coats. Yeah. Or uh, other little uh, baubles to track your driving record or whatever things to track mileage. Oh, you're talking about hum. Well, uh, progressive any, any the, also has one. any of those things. Any of those things would wow. be suspect because they have found that the security level for those things are inconsistent. Well, folks, <laughs> when we come back, will GM beat Elon Musk? We'll find out. This is Roadworthy Drive. Tuned in to Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. This is the fourth and final segment for this hour of Roadworthy Drive. Thank you for dropping by. I'm Ken Chester. Now, before we tackle the last topic on the agenda, an actual programming note. With the introduction of so many new vehicles from the Los Angeles Auto Show, the International Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas, and the North American International Auto Show in Detroit, a special treat. For the next two shows, I'm going to focus on the best in show. Uh, one will be all domestic, and the second one will focus on the imports. We'll be posting pictures of these vehicles to our Facebook page for all to see. So you're not going to want to miss out. That's what's going to be coming up on our next couple of shows of Roadworthy Drive. So you're going to want to stay tuned. And if you're really good, I might even give you a real sneak peek and uh, confirmed introductions in Chicago, which is what I'm going to be in a few weeks. Yes, you will be. I will. So getting back to the question at hand, will they or won't they? And I'm talking about General Motors and the question that surrounds the building of a pure electric pickup truck. Now, we've reported here that Elon Musk has announced his intentions to do just that. But with his plate full already with the Model 3 sedan and a new electric semi-truck, the promise of a pickup truck may be yet further down the line than you might think. So, the question is, will a regenerate, would an, an energized GM beat Elon to the punch? What do you think, Sasha? Uh, you know, as much as I root for Elon, I would have to say that if GM sets out a goal to produce a truck that would be worthy of their standard consumer base, that would be comparable to what they have, what's available now, except in an electric market, they would beat out Tesla. What do you think, Jack? You're a truck owner. They're going to beat Tesla. Tesla's got too many problems right now, and and GM's got the resources and the ability. They've already got the bolt with a B, you mm-hmm. know. They've already got that that nameplate taken care of. But now I think what you're going to find is the question is going to become: Will that truck actually sell enough to offset the cost of making it? 
or is this going to be something that may take two, three, four years to come around before they're profitable with it? I think the first bout is probably going to have the same problems that, you know, the Dodge Ram had when they went to the new tranny back in, what, the late 90s? When you, they're, or the early well, 2000s? actually, it wasn't so much the Ram as it was their cars, and it was Ultra Drive, yeah. 1989. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, but but here's, here's the difference. Let's, let's lay out some facts. In the 100 years GM's been around, they have built a half a billion cars, yep. trucks, yep. heavy trucks. So they don't have, excuse me, um, production hell. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Not a thing because they've got processes. Uh, we're in a different time now, people. You don't get a pass. The public is not giving you one. If your product isn't right out the gate, you're done. Yep. Put a fork in you. It's over. It's not like using the consumer as the last mile for product testing. Those days ended at least 20, 30 years ago. Consumers doesn't have that kind of patience. And honestly, the quality at this point that everybody is building demands that you get it right first time. Well, but one of the things that you and I have talked about is that people don't like change. One of the things with pickup owners, we like to hear the rev of the engine. I have been in an electric car. Mm -hmm. There's no rev of the engine. Mm -hmm. but there's, there's nothing to get me excited about. Let me leave you a point. Okay. Um, electrics have been pulling weight since the railroad days in the 30s. Oh, I know that. But something to remember. Fuel economy standards, something I've beat on repeatedly over and over and over. And you need to drop that subject. Not going to happen. <laughs> the GM in the 2019 Silverado yep. has got aluminum doors, hoods. The, the, the vehicle is 450 pounds lighter. Okay, than and now goes that commercial. has got to go bye-bye. Well, uh, yeah, no, because I know the commercial you're talking about. Yep. They did not go to an aluminum box. High-strength steel, and they actually made the box a little wider. But they found other places to lighten the load. Also remember, fuel economy. they got to get there. A pickup's heavy. Yep. And if you're not going to get there through an internal combustion engine, and I don't see how you do, then you've got to go electric. Remember, GM's been fooling with light hybrids. You've had a hybrid pickup truck. You've had a hybrid uh, SUV, full-size. What we call light hybrids about 10 years ago. GMC Sierra, Silverado, uh, the Yukon, and the uh, Suburban. Mm -hmm. So they've been there. They've got some history. Plus, you've got the brawn and the strength and the depth and the width of General Motors. GM didn't just start working on electric vehicles. They've got 40, 50 years of doing it. Okay, but you and I have talked about but a lot of this stuff that's coming our way that – the public is going to need to be educated because I know the first thing I would ask is a truck guy. Can this thing pull the same thing that my combustible engine? Oh, easily. Okay. And all they got to do is show that in a commercial, just like they keep beating over folks' head, uh, the difference between Ford's aluminum box and Chevy steel box. You know, that's easy. You want to show the difference? They put a pile of rocks in there and they showed the difference, the before and after. What is believed is going to happen is they believe you're going to get a plug-in hybrid, and then they think you're going to get a pure electric. Mm -hmm. And they believe that GM will have the ability to do this right around 2020 to 2021 based on the current Silverado chassis. 
So think about that for a minute. Okay. Oh, and let me throw this at you. Um, sidebar, mm. plug-in hybrid version of the Jeep Wrangler 2020, mm. which is, to me, too little, too late. Yeah. yeah but I'm not even going to mess with well, it. Well, and they're going to do do that. But I guess... And by then I can get my Volkswagen, um, mm-hmm. the, the, the van. GM is planning in the electrics between crossovers, sedans, and trucks... Mm-hmm. They have some 12 new products hitting the market across their nameplates by 2022-2023. Okay, so we've got, so we got another four or five years yet. Wow. Uh, not exactly, because to get there, you're deep in it now. Yeah. You don't just, boom, here it is. Oh, I know that, but what I'm saying is we're four or five years away from actually seeing the pickups on your dealer lot. Um, I would say probably four years tops, because they got it like that. But it's coming. They figured, in the case of Elon Musk, uh, that he's still four years out only because he's got to build a greenfield plant. He doesn't have the room there in Fremont to do it. Right. So, well, so much to discuss, and as always, so little time. Be sure to tune in next week when we cover the new vehicles introduced to the recent auto shows. On behalf of the Roadworthy Drive team, thanks for listening. This has been Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester. Roadworthy Drive with Ken Chester is a copyrighted presentation of the Roadworthy Drive Radio Network. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or any other use is prohibited without the written consent of the Motor News Media Corporation.